I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. As we continue on in our study that we began a little while ago in Ephesians, we're still in chapter 1. In fact, we're still kind of in the opening sentence that Paul has. As we've been looking after these initial introductory comments about Paul introducing himself and who he's writing to. Verses 3 all the way down through verse 14 is one long sentence that Paul's writing. We've been looking at that over the last several weeks, looking at the work of the Father and of the Son, and today we come to the end of this long sentence, verses 11 through 14, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and why we should be greatly encouraged by it. So we're going to be looking uh, primarily at verses 11 through 14, but I'm going to read the, the, uh, the whole section from verse 3 all the way down through verse 14 just to give us some context. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the shed blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit, who not only instructed Paul and and carried him along in such a way that he wrote these words to the people in Ephesus so long ago, but also, Father, opens our hearts and minds. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word today. May we truly understand what it means that we are your inheritance and you have given us an inheritance that will last forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How much does what you believe about your eternal destiny impact how you deal with the circumstances of your life? A pastor acquaintance of mine uh, tells a fictitious story, something he made up, in order to get at that question. How much does what we believe about the future actually impact how we live in the midst of circumstances in our lives? Imagine two people, both put into separate rooms. Rooms are identical. Table, chair, no windows. And in each of those rooms, there is work for each of those people to do. It's identical work. It's busybody work. It's monotonous work. It is work which may seem boring and maybe even not that much fun. 
The circumstances are exactly the same for both people with one exception. The person in the first room is told that at the end of doing that monotonous, laborious, everyday, ordinary job, at the end of one year of doing it, they will be paid $10,000. The person in the second room is told that at the end of doing that job for one year, they will be paid $100 million. Now, how do you think that information would change how those two people thought of and did their jobs? The one would feel like the work is tedious and maybe even unbearable. While the other would think, this is not so bad. It's even something that's tolerable. Something that I can persevere to the end so that I can get that incredible prize. Why? Why the difference? Identical circumstances and yet the circumstances are being processed differently because of the difference of the end result between the two. Now every analogy breaks down at some point and this one may break down more quickly than others. But the thought, the idea, the truth that I want us to be thinking about this morning is that as human beings, we are dramatically and significantly influenced by what we believe about the future. What we believe about the future can significantly change how we deal with the circumstances in the present in our lives. If those circumstances are hard or mundane or tedious or difficult, if our future is filled with hope, then we can have strength to endure and persevere and even prosper in the midst of difficult circumstances. But if we have no sense of hope, or if that hope is not real to us, it has not gripped our imaginations and our hearts, then the circumstances of our lives will often dictate how we feel and even our ability to persevere through them. And Paul understood this reality of how human beings work, how we're wired. He's writing to these Christians in the city of Ephesus who are dealing with incredible challenges and difficult circumstances in their life, even to the point of despair and doubt. And he's writing this letter to encourage them to motivate them and push them on to greater faith and obedience, to motivate them to persevere to the end, even in the midst of their challenges. And over the last weeks, we've been looking about looking at this opening long sentence that Paul wrote in verses 3 through 14. He began in verses 3 through 6 to tell us about the work of the Father, how He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he went on in verses 7 to 10 to talk, not, talk to us not only about the Father's work in choosing us from before the foundation of the world, but the Son's work in coming and redeeming us through his blood and giving us the forgiveness of our trespasses. And today, Paul's going to talk to us about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he focuses, as he talks about the Holy Spirit, on this idea of an inheritance. Those that are in Christ are an inheritance and have been given an inheritance and the result of that is that we should face the circumstances of our lives, whether good or bad, with hope. 
So let's look and see what he says here about these two things. The first thing is that we are, as God's people, an inheritance. Now, where do I get that from this text? I'll admit to you, it's a little hard to see, especially if you're looking at the ESV translation. It's a little bit obscured in the ESV, and we need to get technical just for a second, so stick with me. It's easier to see if you've got the NIV open in front of you. Scholars and commentators point out the trickiness of the Greek word structure here, particularly in verse 11. And good biblical reformed scholars disagree about how to interpret verse 11. If you're looking at the ESV, verse 11 says, in essence, in Jesus, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. The Greek text and what the NIV says is that in Jesus, we have been made an inheritance. It's a passive verb. You can even see how the uh, writers of the, or the, the, the uh, translators of the ESV get at that sense. If you look down in verse 14, there's a little footnote that you'll see where they talk about until God redeems his possession. The, the sense here is, the question is, is Paul talking about our inheritance that is gained for us by Jesus Christ or God's inheritance of us that is secured by Christ's work? And we're going to see as we look at this passage that Paul is actually saying both of those things. But I think what he's saying here in verse 11 is this sense that in Christ, in Jesus, we have been made an inheritance. We, as God's people, are God's inheritance. Now that probably strikes you a little bit odd, or at least it should, that God has an inheritance. And that if you're in Christ this morning, you are God's inheritance. But it really shouldn't strike us as being that odd because it's the same phrasing and language that we hear often in the Old Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament. Let me just give you three places in one book alone, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 20 we read, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Just a couple of chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion or the Lord's inheritance is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. God's people are God's inheritance. They are His treasured possession. They are His heritage. I want to pause for a moment and I want you to reflect on that. If you are here this morning as a Christian, then you are God's inheritance. The sovereign Creator looks and sees and considers and makes you His inheritance, His treasured possession. On the one hand, that truth ought to amaze us. It ought to astound us. It ought to overwhelm us to meditate on the reality that God has an inheritance and it is you in Christ Jesus. 
On the other hand, it also should feel to us like a problem. Because we know inheritances can be lost. All you have to do is go online. You can find all kinds of stories of massive amounts of inheritances being lost by those to whom it is given. In fact, experts tell us that over the next generation, we're going to see the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of humankind. Over the next 10 to 30 years, there's going to be a transfer of somewhere around $30 trillion in assets from the boomer generation to their heirs. And some of you may even be experiencing that, whether you are a boomer and you're passing something on, or maybe you're going to be receiving something from, uh, from uh, relatives. And experts say, not only is that transfer of wealth going to happen in the next generation, but they also go on to say that as much as 70% of the transfer will be lost by the second generation of those heirs. It's easy to lose an inheritance through poor investments, through squandering it, perhaps even by being taken away through no fault of the heirs themselves. And when we talk about this idea of inheritance, we can get the reality in our mind that the possibility of losing that inheritance is real. So Paul gives us several reasons why this idea of us being God's inheritance can never be lost. Notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. We, as God's inheritance, are anchored in God's plan. Verse 11. In him... We have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Do you see what he's saying? God has a purpose. God has a will. God has a plan. And that plan, that purpose, that will is something that is, we read earlier and looked at earlier in the passage, something that has been set before the foundation of the world, he says in verse 4. And it's based on nothing in and of ourselves. It is based purely on God's love, he says in verse 5. So that before time began, we were made to be God's treasured possession, His inheritance. And throughout the scriptures, we read that God is sovereign. He is in control, that his will, his purpose, his plan can never be thwarted. It can never be defeated. That's what he's saying in verse 11, that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As Sinclair Ferguson meditated on this verse, verse 11, he said, verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 may be the strongest and most comprehensive statement about God's absolute sovereignty in the whole Bible. And we can see that as we continue on in verse 11. It's not only that we have been anchored in God's plan, but we have been secured by God's power. We have been made in an, an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who does what? Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God, the sovereign Creator, who has a plan, who has a purpose, who has a will, works all things to accomplish that purpose and will. And that means that the sovereign Creator of the universe is at work using all of the power at His disposal to secure us as His inheritance. 
Paul goes on and says it one more time, a different way in verse 12. So that, he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you're in Christ this morning, you are God's inheritance. And not only has that inheritance of God's been anchored in God's plan and secured by his power, but you as his inheritance are designed for his praise. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that God is jealous For his praise and glory. He will see to it that ultimately he receives all praise and glory more than anything else. And what he is saying in verse 12 is as his inheritance, you are to his praise and glory. So we can be assured that not only are we anchored in his plan and secured by his power, we have been designed and set apart for his praise. And there's no way that our sovereign God will allow that to be lost. We're going to talk about this more in just a moment. But just for a moment, I want you to pause and to meditate on this idea. That as God's inheritance, we ought to be astounded and amazed and overwhelmed by that truth. And incredibly encouraged and filled with hope as we realize that God's inheritance has been anchored in his plan and secured by his power and designed for his praise. There's no possibility that God can lose his inheritance. Paul goes on to talk about not only the fact that we are God's inheritance, but he talks about the fact that we have an inheritance. That's what he's getting at in verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So what is our inheritance? Well, just remind yourself what Paul's already been telling us in verses 3 Through verse 10, that we as God's people are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have been declared holy and blameless now. And one day we will be made holy and blameless in actuality. That we have been adopted as sons and daughters of our creator king. That we have been given redemption. That we have forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. And that a day is coming when all things will be united together in Christ. Things on earth and things in heaven. That's, that's the inheritance that we have as God's people. Or to put it another way, we could look at all of the Old Testament promises that are given to God's people and fulfilled in Christ. If you are here this morning as one who is in Christ, then that inheritance is yours as well. Or to put it another way, our inheritance is that we get God Himself. We are given a relationship that is eternally and completely secure and sure with our Heavenly Father. But we should also reflect on how Our inheritance can't be lost. It's one thing to say the sovereign creator God of the universe can't lose his inheritance. It's quite another thing to say the inheritance is our inheritance and we are fallen and broken and we are prone to wander and to lose it. So how do we know that our inheritance that God gives to us is something that can't be lost? Well, Paul mentions several things here. The first thing that he says is we can know that our inheritance is secure. Our inheritance can't be lost because God has always been faithful to his people. 
Now, where do I get that from? Well, if you look at verse 11 and 12 and remind yourself, look at the pronouns that Paul is using here. In Him, we have been made an inheritance, in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. But then look at verses 13 and 14. In Him, you also... Some of the commentators talk about this as the we who and the you too. He's saying as he begins verses 11 and 12, he's speaking in the first person plural. We who. Who is he speaking of? He's talking about people that are like him. Jewish converts. Those who come from a Jewish background but who have put their faith in Christ like Paul had. They have been made an inheritance. But then he goes on in verses 13 and, and, and 14 to say, And you also, or you too, now speaking to the Gentiles in Ephesus, you too have been redeemed. You too have been made an inheritance. The point that he's making here is that God has always been faithful to His people from day one. He has been faithful to His promises to God's people in the Old Testament. And as they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul did as a Jewish convert, now those who are Gentile Christians who are putting their faith in Christ in Ephesus are joined and connected and grafted into this wonderful, long story of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises to His people. So he's saying, have hope. Your inheritance is safe because God has always been faithful to His people and His covenant promises. There's another aspect of how Paul wants us to see how our inheritance is secured. We get at it in verse 13. He says in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Christ, when we heard the gospel, when we believed, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That word seal is a very important word. The word that Paul is using here has the sense of, of having a mark being put on something that you own so that everybody will know that you are the owner and it has authenticity. It also has kind of the sense of a brand that would be put on cattle or animals that had the name of the owner so that no one would have any doubts about who that animal, who that cattle belonged to. There was, there was a stamp, there was a mark, there was a brand that made it abundantly clear who owned it. And do you see what he's saying? If you're in Christ this morning then you have been branded. You have been marked out with nothing less than, what does He say, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You have been marked with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. When we come to faith in Christ, God stamps His seal on us and He says, You are Mine. You are Authentic as a child of God. And here is the proof. The seal of the Holy Spirit on you. Paul gets at it one last time in verse 14. Not only do we have the, the truth that God is faithful to His people always. 
Not only do we have the promise that in Christ we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, but what does he say in verse 14? The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee is another important word. In the Greek, it is the Greek word erabon. If you went to Greece today and you heard that word being used, erabon, you would most likely be in a context of somebody talking about an engagement ring. That's how it's used today. But in the ancient Greek culture, it was actually used to talk about a financial transaction. It was used to describe a deposit or a down payment or a pledge, earnest money, that was given to secure a legal claim on something. So you see what Paul is saying here. God has secured your salvation, your inheritance, by sealing you with the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest money of God for your inheritance. You think about as you purchase a home, you put down earnest money. It's your pledge, it's your deposit, it's your down payment. And notice in that same in the same way, Paul is saying here not just that the Holy Spirit is the promise of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit is the actual down payment, he says. The Holy Spirit is the earnest money of God. He is the foretaste of what is actually ours and will be known completely when Jesus returns. The Holy Spirit's not just an IOU, but it's an actual down payment that God makes for us. Do we understand the significance of what Paul is saying over and over again in these verses that we are God's inheritance and we can never be lost as God's inheritance and He has given us an inheritance, all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and those spiritual blessings, that inheritance that is ours can never be lost. God is faithful to His people. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit who is the very down payment, the earnest money of our inheritance. So what does that mean as we leave and think about how to apply this into our lives? Well, two things for you today as we think about how to apply us, apply this. The first is this understanding of the fact that we are God's inheritance and He gives us an inheritance should lead us to have a certainty about that inheritance which leads us to have hope, which leads us to have peace. The circumstances of our lives change constantly. They can be good. They can be bad. They can be that which make us encouraged or that which make us discouraged. They can be easy or they can be extremely stressful and difficult. And if we are driven in our lives by the circumstances of our lives, we will constantly be moving back and forth, swinging from when it's good to when it's bad, and have a, a lack of sense of God's work in our midst. But if what Paul is saying is true, then what we ought to be banking our hope on is not based on how the circumstances of life are going, but on the truth that we are God's inheritance and He has given us an inheritance and those things can never 
change. No matter the circumstances in our lives, us being God's inheritance and our inheritance coming from Him are secured. And what Paul is saying is, that truth should lead us to be people who are filled with hope that leads us to peace in this life no matter what the circumstances. Paul's talked this way in other places. In the letter, the second letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, he says this, We have this treasure, this inheritance, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. Sound familiar? But not crushed. Perplexed. Sound familiar? But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. The circumstances of our lives is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Do you see what he's saying? If we meditate, if we are driven, if we are captivated most by the circumstances of our lives, then we are going to be people who are despairing and crushed and overwhelmed. But as we would look not simply to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the great inheritance that we are for God and the fact that He has given us these wonder, this wonderful inheritance then we, as he says, will be people of incredible hope. Paul gets at it again that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks in chapter 1 down in verse 18 of Ephesians. He says, have the eyes, the, the image you hear is, is wonderful, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? As God's people, we should be about the business of helping the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to see not simply the circumstances of our life which ebb and flow, but to see the riches of His grace and the inheritance that He has given to us and the inheritance that we are for Him. It's what we confessed earlier in our service in the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you remember, we said the certainty that we have is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. In other words, the hope that we have, the certainty that we have, is not based on some fallible hope, some hope that can fail. But it is an infallible assurance of faith. Why? Because it is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. It is, secondly, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. And thirdly, it is based on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And then they finished by saying this, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance? whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. If we want lives 
that are not controlled and driven by the changing circumstances of our lives, then we must take to heart what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1, 3-14. And these truths of what he says must inform and motivate us more than our ever-changing circumstances in life. Secondly, and lastly, another takeaway for us is that we must live to the praise of God's glory and grace. If you've been with us as we've looked at this entire passage, or even just as you remember as we read the whole passage to begin with, there's a common refrain that happens over and over again in these verses. In verse 6, in verse 12, and in verse 14, Paul mentions that we are to be to the praise of God's glorious grace. In other words, as we meditate on the work of our Heavenly Father, we should be moved to praise His glory and His grace. As we meditate on the work of the Son in redeeming us, we should be moved to the praise of God's glory and grace. And as we meditate on the work of the Holy Spirit as our seal and guarantee and down payment of our inheritance, we should be moved to praise God's glory and grace. And His grace. So as we finish, let's just put some feet on that for a minute. If we're gripped by what Paul says in these verses, then we as God's people will put His will, His glory, what pleases Him first in our lives. That means that we are called to obedience in the hard things and the hard times in life. So, when you're in the moment and tempted... To cheat on a test or a paper. Or when you're in that moment and you're tempted to make an unethical shortcut in your research. Or when we're tempted to take steps toward an unbiblical divorce. Or those moments when we're tempted to pursue a romantic relationship with someone who's not a Christian. Or those moments when we are tempted to turn serving in the church and ministries that God has given to us more about our name and us being in the spotlight than God's glory. Or those moments when we're tempted to take to treat the money that we have as all our own rather than as what God has given us to be good stewards with. What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments of temptation? Is it about what you want? Or is it about the glory of God's grace? Paul is telling us we are to be living like who we are. We are God's treasured possession. We are God's inheritance. And He has secured our inheritance for Him. And so we ought to go out and live like who we are. In Christ, he says, we have been made God's inheritance, His treasured and much loved Possession, And that is anchored by His sovereign plan and secured by His sovereign power and designed for the praise of His glory. And in Christ we have been given an inheritance, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that has been secured by the fact that God is consistently and always faithful to His people. Sealing us with His Holy Spirit. Guaranteeing, giving a down payment, a deposit, His earnest money through the Holy Spirit Himself. So, let's go out and live like who we are. Filled with the certainty that leads us, with, leads us to hope, that leads us to peace in this life, and to do it all for the praise of His glory and grace. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we come before you, and, and I know that in this room we have many challenging circumstances in life. And whether we are enduring that right now, or whether we know them in the distant past, or whether they're coming in the not-too-far-away future, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate on this wonderful truth of what Paul is telling the Ephesians and through the work of the Holy Spirit, us today as well. I pray, Father, that the reality that we are your inheritance, eternally secured, and that you have given us an inheritance, eternally secured, would so captivate our thoughts and minds and hearts that we would be people who desire to have a life filled with glory for you above all things and a life that is filled with hope and peace that passes all understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this part of our service each week, toward the end of our service, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we talk a lot about and put a lot of emphasis on the fact that this Lord's Supper is a remembrance. It's, it's something that points us to Jesus Christ, His body, His blood given for us to redeem us, to forgive our sins, and to give us His righteousness. And also we talk about and put an emphasis on the fact that this is not only a remembrance, it's also a means of grace that as we come by faith, believing and trusting that through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we eat and drink in faith, God works through the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to send us out to live as His people in the week to come. Those are good and right things for us to emphasize. But I think it's also good and right for us to acknowledge that we're also making a statement as we come to the Lord's Supper each week. We are making a statement by partaking in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're declaring that we are believing and trusting in Christ, that we have made a public profession of that belief and connected ourselves to His church. And we're also making a declaration that it is our desire, it's our intention as God's people to go out and to live like who we are. Only by God's grace... Only by God's empowering through the Holy Spirit, for sure. But as we eat and drink before one another, before the Lord, before the watching world, we are making a statement, we are declaring, I understand myself to be a child of God, part of God's inheritance, and I intend to go out this week and to live for Him like who He's called me to be. If that's you this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have publicly professed your faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes the gospel of God's good news by grace alone in Christ alone, then as the trays are coming around, eat and drink and be reminded, be strengthened as you eat in faith by the work of the Holy Spirit and know your statement, your declaration of saying, I desire and intend to go out and to live for Him this week ahead. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table and ask Him to use it for His glory and our good. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before You with thankful hearts for giving us the Lord's Supper, this means of grace. We pray that You would remind us once again and point us away from ourselves and point us to our Savior and His work on our behalf. We pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we eat and drink in faith, that you would strengthen us so that we can go out 
and live like who you have called us to be. And we pray, Father, that you would hear our genuine desire through your help, through your grace, through your power, that we would live as who we are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.